Chapter 5. A History of California, the American Period, by Robert Glass Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5. Jedediah Smith, Pathfinder of the Sierras. The exploration and settlement of the Trans-Allegheny West is the great epic of American history. The opening of the approaches to California is the culmination of that epic. For the American advance to California possessed a dual character. While New England shipmasters were establishing commercial relations along the coast, Western fur traders were opening overland lines of communication between the Mississippi and the Pacific, and thus preparing the way for an overwhelming tide of immigration from the frontier states into the Mexican province. The first American to reach California by overland route was Jedediah Strong Smith, a fur trader of very considerable education and a pronounced religious life. Smith was born in 1798 in the Mohawk Valley of New York, where his parents, pioneers of no mean type themselves, had moved from New Hampshire a few years before. As a boy, Smith came in touch with the fur traders of Canada and the Northwest through a position as clerk on one of the freight boats of the Great Lakes. Not many years later, when about twenty years of age, he went to St. Louis, then the very center of Western activities, and began his career as a fur trader and explorer. Smith's first expeditions, in company with such men as David E. Jackson, William Ashley, Andrew Henry, and Thomas Fitzpatrick, carried him through the regions drained by the central Missouri and the Yellowstone, and even as far west as the Columbia and the Great Salt Lake. This, however, was but the apprenticeship of his career. His real work as a pathfinder began in the summer of 1826, when, at the head of a party of fifteen men, he set out to explore the unknown region lying between the Great Salt Lake and the California coast. From the geographic standpoint, the exploration of this portion of the Trans-Rocky Mountain West was of the utmost importance, for American knowledge of the country was still almost as hazy and indefinite as it had been a hundred years before. Early in the century, Lewis and Clark had opened a transcontinental route to the Pacific by way of the Missouri and the Columbia, and had thus prepared the way for further exploration of the Northwest by the fur traders. Pike's expedition had served a similar purpose for the Southwest, and already the Santa Fe trade had begun to link the Mexican settlements along the upper Rio Grande with those of the Americans in Missouri. But the region known as the Great Basin, from the Snake River to the Colorado and from the Rocky Mountains to the Sierras, as well as the great inland valleys of the Sacramento and the San Joaquin, lay unexplored by American adventurers and unknown to American geographers. It was the task of Smith and his fifteen men to do for this region what Lewis and Clark had done for the Northwest and what Pike had accomplished in Colorado and New Mexico a few years before. As already explained, Smith was a fur trader. His associates in the business were men who represented all that was best in the profession. Their real business, in fact, was not so much the taking of furs as the extension of American influence throughout the wilderness. They were the empire builders of the West. Foremost among them was William Henry Ashley, explorer extraordinary and recognized leader of the fur hunters in the Rocky Mountains. Two others, of equal ability and scarcely less reputation, were David E. Jackson and William L. Sublett. The last two mentioned trappers had rendezvoused at the Great Salt Lake in the summer of 1826. Here they were joined by Ashley and Smith, coming from St. Louis with a supply of goods for the Indian trade. At this rendezvous, Ashley disposed of his share of the business to his three partners, 
and it was under the direction of this newly organized firm of Sublet, Jackson, and Smith that the expedition to California was undertaken. The primary purpose of the undertaking was the discovery of a new field for the exploitation of furs, but as Smith and his associates were not men of narrow interests, the expedition was something more than a commercial enterprise. Incidentally, the leader probably hoped to establish a depot on the California coast for the shipment of furs to China, thus carrying out the plan John Jacob Astor had tried, unsuccessfully, at the mouth of the Columbia some fourteen years before. Smith's company left the Salt Lake Rendezvous August 22, 1826, taking a southwest course to Utah Lake, or Little Utah, as the trappers named it, the expedition followed up the Sevier River and later crossed a range of mountains to a river which Smith called the Adams in compliment to our president. Footnote. On the next expedition, the same river seems to have been renamed the Virgin after one of Smith's men. In footnote. Keeping down this stream for twelve days, the party arrived at the Colorado, or Seed Skeaker, to give it the Indian name for the Green River, which Smith employed. Quote, I crossed the Seed Skeaker, wrote Smith in describing his route, and went down it four days a southwest course. I here found the country remarkably barren, rocky, and mountainous. There are a good many rapids in the river, but at this place a valley opens out about five to fifteen miles in width, which on the river banks is timbered and fertile. I found here a nation of Indians who call themselves Amukabas, or Mojaves, they cultivate the soil and raise corn, beans, pumpkins, watermelons, and muskmelons in abundance, and also a little wheat and cotton. I was now nearly destitute of horses and had learned what it was to do without food. I therefore remained here fifteen days and recruited my men, and I was enabled also to exchange my horses and purchase a few more of a few runaway Indians who stole some horses of the Spaniards. From these Indians, Smith also secured two guides and began the last stage of his journey to California. Of his trip across the desert, he wrote, quote, I traveled a west course fifteen days over a country of complete barrens, generally traveling from morning until night without water. I crossed a salt plain about twenty miles long and eight wide. On the surface was a crust of beautiful white salt, quite thin. Under this surface there is a layer of salt from a half to one and a half inches in depth, between this and the upper layer, there is about four inches of yellowish sand. Unquote. The exact course followed by Smith on this stage of his journey is not clear. Probably it did not materially differ from the route now taken by the Santa Fe Railroad, but this cannot be determined with certainty. He at length crossed the Sierra Madre Range through the Cajon Pass and reached the fertile plains of California in the vicinity of the present site of San Bernardino. On November 27th, the party encamped a few miles from the flourishing mission of San Gabriel, the first Americans to make the transcontinental journey to California and the forerunners of a great overland advance. The presence of the Americans in this province was contrary to Mexican law, but in spite of this, and the additional fact that Smith and his chief lieutenant, Harrison G. Rogers, were Protestants of the old school, the priests gave the strangers a courteous welcome. In charge of the mission at that time was Father Jose Bernardo Sanchez, a man of generous spirit, for whom the Americans came to have a real affection. Quote, Old Father Sanchez, wrote Rogers, as the party was about to leave the mission, has been the greatest friend that I ever met with in all of my travels. 
I shall ever hold him as a man of God, taking us when in distress, feeding and clothing us, and may God prosper him and all such men. Upon the arrival of the Americans at the mission, a young cow was killed, and an abundance of cornmeal was given the half-starved trappers who, at last, after three months of strenuous travel, had reached a land of plenty. A few days later, Father Sanchez presented Smith with sixty-four yards of cloth, out of which he and his men, by this time almost naked, made themselves shirts. Smith and Rogers, as leaders of the company, were shown additional courtesies by the mission priests. Most of these, Rogers found to be very jovial, friendly gentlemen, remarkably appreciative of good liquors, and not much given to asking embarrassing questions. The mission itself, then at the height of its prosperity, made a deep impression upon the American trappers. Rogers wrote of it as follows, quote, The mansion, or mission, consists of four rows of houses forming a complete square, where there is all kinds of mechanics at work. The church faces the east and the guardhouse the west. The north and south line comprises the workshops. They have large vineyards, apple and peach orchards, and some orange and some fig trees. They manufacture blankets and sundry other articles. They distill whiskey and grind their own grain, having a water mill of a tolerable quality. They have upwards of a thousand persons employed, men, women, and children, Indians of different nations. The situation is very handsome, pretty streams of water running through from all quarters, some thousands of acres of rich and fertile land as level as a die in view, and a part under cultivation, surrounded on the north with a high and lofty mountain covered with grass. Cattle? This mission has upwards of 30,000 head of cattle, and horses, sheep, hogs, etc. in proportion. They slaughter at this place from two to 3,000 head of cattle at a time. The mission lives on the profits. Unquote. After remaining at San Gabriel ten days, waiting to hear from the governor to whom he had written upon his arrival at the mission, Smith set out for San Diego to make his peace with the Mexican officials in person and to obtain permission for his men to stay in the province. The rest of the company remained at San Gabriel during Smith's absence under the command of Rogers. The latter equally deplored his ignorance of Spanish and the condition of his garments. These, he says, were so torn and dirty that they gave him a very grotesque appearance when seated at table amongst the dandies with their ruffles, silks, and broad clothes. Otherwise, however, Rogers' life at the mission was all that could be desired. He had an abundance to eat and drink, spent much of his time in hunting with the mission fathers, and watched with never-failing interest the varied activities around him. One day he attends a wedding. Again, he superintends the making of a large bear trap to set in the priest's orange garden to catch the Indians when they come up at night to rob his orchard. On another occasion, he defends his Calvinistic creed against the Catholic doctrines around him, and on New Year's Day, 1827, he delivers an address to the Reverend Father of the San Gabriel Mission, setting forth in surprising detail the early missionary activities of the Christian Church, and enriched by a lengthy quotation from Justin Martyr. Truly, Harrison G. Rogers, the fur trader, was a man of parts. While Rogers was thus variously occupied, the men were becoming restless. A number of them were engaged by Father Sanchez to cut cordwood for his coal pit, and others found temporary service with one of the hide and tallow ships taking on a cargo at San Pedro. 
On January 6th, most of the company attended a celebration at the mission in honor of the Feast of the Epiphany. Rogers thus describes what took place. Quote, church held early as usual, men, women, and children attend. After church, the ceremonies as on Sunday. Wine issued abundantly to both Spaniards and Indians, music played by the Indian band. After the issue of the morning, our men, in company with some Spaniards, went and fired a salute, and the old padre gave them bread, wine, meat as a treat. Some of the men got drunk. James Reed and Daniel Ferguson commenced fighting, and some of the Spaniards interfered and struck one of our men by the name of Black, which came near terminating with bad consequence. So soon as I heard of the disturbance, I went among them and pacified our men by telling what trouble they were bringing upon themselves in case they did not desist, and most of them, being men of reason, adhered to my advice. James Reed, however, a troublemaker on numerous occasions whom Smith had been compelled to flog shortly after reaching San Gabriel, was too far gone to heed Rogers' admonitions. Instead, that same day he came, quote, very abruptly into the priest's dining-room while at dinner, and asked for ergant, a guardiente or brandy. The priest ordered a plate of victuals to be handed to him. He eat a few mouthfuls and set the plate on the table, and then took up the decanter of wine and drank without invitation, and came very near breaking the glass when he set it down. The padre, seeing he was in a state of inebriety, refrained from saying anything." Unquote. No further incidents of such an unseemly nature occurred, however, while the party remained at the mission. In the meanwhile, Smith was having considerable difficulty in his dealings with Governor Echeandia at San Diego. The Mexican law very definitely forbade the presence of foreigners in California without proper passports, and these the governor was not willing to issue on his own responsibility. After nearly a month of negotiation, however, and the presentation of eight fine beaver skins, Smith secured the necessary papers. In his efforts, he was greatly aided by Captain Cunningham, an American shipmaster in command of the Courier, a hide and tallow vessel then lying at San Diego. Etchiandia's concessions, given with reluctance and suspicion, were far from fulfilling all that Smith desired. He had requested permission to lead his party northward from San Gabriel, through the settled portions of California, between the coast range and the sea until he reached the Russian colony at Bodega. But this Echeandia refused to permit, and would only allow the Americans to return unmolested over the route by which they had come. Making the best of the situation, Smith returned to San Gabriel on January 10th, coming from San Diego to San Pedro as a guest of Captain Cunningham on the Courier. The next few days were spent in purchasing horses from the ranches near Los Angeles, repairing saddles, and arranging equipment for a renewal of the journey. Finally, on Thursday, January 18th, the party set out. The horses, some 68 in number, were only half broken, and before the cavalcade had gone half a mile, the animals began to run, strewing the contents of the packs along the way for a distance of 8 or 10 miles. Among the articles so unceremoniously lost were 12 dress skins which Smith had received as a parting gift from Father Sanchez. The first night's camp was made near an Indian farmhouse four miles northeast of the mission, where the party had spent the night of November 27th. From this point, their course lay eastward along the edge of the Sierra Madre Mountains, 
following closely what is now the foothill boulevard so popular with southern california motorists the party reached an outlying ranch of the san gabriel mission near the entrance to the cajon pass camping a short distance from this ranch the trappers spent several days breaking the still unruly horses and making final preparations for the long journey through the wild and unknown country ahead in spite of echeandia's instructions smith had no intention as yet of quitting california the route along the coast might be closed to him by the governor's orders but east of the mountains there was neither mexican law nor mexican soldier to dispute the passage of the american trappers smith therefore turned northward when he reached the desert entrance of the cajon pass followed the sierra madres to the junction of the coast range of the sierra nevadas and entered the southern end of the great san joaquin valley either by the tajon pass or the tehachapi traveling leisurely down the valley which he found inhabited by large numbers of indians very backward in civilization living only on acorns roots grass and fish armed only with bows and arrows but in no way hostile or dangerous smith and his men came at length to one of the numerous rivers which flow into the valley from the sierras this was probably the stanislaus of the merced but here again the record is too incomplete to fix the matter definitely smith called this stream the wimilcha after an indian tribe which lived beside it here he trapped a short time finding a few beaver elk and deer and antelope in abundance he then endeavored to cross the sierras and return to the great salt lake nothing definite is known as to the pass through which smith sought to lead his men on this occasion he speaks of the attempt having been made across mount joseph but the route can only be conjectured footnote mount lassen on later maps sometimes appears as mount st joseph but mount lassen is too far north by many miles to be identified as the peak to which smith refers in footnote Harrison C. Dale, the best authority on the expedition, identifies Mount Joseph with Mount Stanislaus and tentatively fixes Smith's course along the middle fork of the Stanislaus River to the Divide. Smith's own brief account runs as follows, quote, I found the snow so deep on Mount Joseph that I could not cross my horses, five of which starved to death. I was compelled, therefore, to return to the valley which I had left, and there, leaving my party, I started with two men, seven horses and two mules which i loaded with hay for the horses and provisions for ourselves and started on the twentieth of may and succeeded in crossing it in eight days having lost only two horses and one mule i found the snow on top of this mountain from four to eight feet deep but it was so consolidated by the heat of the sun that my horses only sunk from half a foot to one foot deep from the eastern slope of the Sierras, Smith and his companions probably followed the course of Walker River to the vicinity of Walker Lake and then turned northeasterly toward the Great Salt Lake. The intervening country was of the worst possible description, barren, waterless, and without game. One by one the horses gave out and were eaten by the famishing men. The scanty water holes were frequently two days apart. The Indians they encountered were hopelessly degraded, living on grasshoppers, lizards, and roots. More dead than alive, the three men, with but one horse and a mule left out of the nine with which they had started from the San Joaquin, at length reached the southwest end of the Great Salt Lake, twenty days after leaving the Sierra Nevadas. Smith's explorations in California did not cease with his first expedition. At the Salt Lake he met his partners, Jackson and Sublette, and remained with them about a month. 
Here, a new party of 19 men was organized, and Smith set out, July 13, 1827, to rejoin the hunters he had left on the Wimulcha. Following his original route, he reached the Mojave villages without serious mishap. But here, disaster overtook him. For three days, the Indians traded with the trappers and appeared as friendly as on Smith's first visit. But on the fourth, when the company had become separated in crossing the Colorado, they fell upon the Americans, killed ten of their number, and forced the remainder to abandon most of their belongings and flee by forced marches across the desert. The stricken party reached the San Gabriel Mission after nine days and a half of desperate hardship. Smith, obtaining such supplies as he could at the mission and leaving two of his men behind, hurried forward into the San Joaquin Valley and rejoined the company he had left on the Wimulcha the preceding May. Footnote. The two young men left at San Gabriel were Isaac Galbraith and Thomas Virgin. The latter had been wounded at the Colorado. End of footnote. The condition of the United Party was far from satisfactory. Their food was about exhausted. The length of the journey and the difficulties before them made a return to the Salt Lake impossible without fresh supplies. And, as they had violated the governor's orders by remaining in the province, they were likely to suffer arrest if application for aid should be made to the Californians. Since there was no other recourse, however, Smith took his Indian guides and set out for the mission of San Jose, which lay west of the coast range. This he reached in three days, probably crossing the mountains by way of Pacheco Pass. Father Duran, at the head of this mission, was a man of very different kidney from the good Sanchez at San Gabriel. He had already accused the trappers of enticing away certain neophytes, and when Smith came asking assistance, he arrested the surprised American and confined him in the wretched hovel called a jail. Here Smith was kept without food for three days, and for a much longer time was denied the privilege of presenting his case in person to the governor at Monterey. When he finally obtained his release and arrived at Monterey, Smith found the governor, the self-same Echiandia with whom he had dealt at San Diego the previous year, in no very amiable or certain frame of mind. For a time, Echiandia threatened to send Smith as a prisoner to Mexico. But at length, he was prevailed upon by several American ship captains, whose vessels were then in port, to permit the Americans to secure needed supplies and leave the country in peace. In return for this concession, Smith gave a bond for $30,000 to ensure his actual departure from the province. In the meantime, Smith's men had abandoned their camp in the San Joaquin and traveled northward, finally arriving at San Francisco badly in need of food and clothing. Their situation was relieved by a German merchant named Henry Vimond, who had recently established himself on the California coast. Smith next attempted to secure additional recruits for his company from among the English and American residents in California, but the Mexican authorities intervened to prevent him. The agreement between Smith and Echiandia stipulated that the Americans should leave the Mexican settlements within two months. There were many good reasons for delaying their departure beyond this time, but the trappers, being experienced and well acquainted with Spanish generosity, were afraid to take further risks and so began to move slowly northward along the Bond Adventure or Sacramento River. After various unsuccessful efforts to find a pass through the Sierra Nevada Mountains, the company left the Sacramento about the middle of April 1828 and took a northwest course across the coast range, through what is now Trinity and Humboldt counties to the sea. This portion of the route was rough and difficult in the extreme, 
as the writer of this volume from his own experience can feelingly testify. The pack horses were often scattered and lost in the thick brush. Others had to be abandoned because of fatigue or injury. Sometimes they tumbled off the makeshift trails and were cut and bruised by the jagged rocks. Day after day the record of hardship and danger remained the same. But of these trials, a single entry from Rogers' diary must serve as an illustration. On May 14, 1828, he wrote, quote, We made an early start, directing our course as yesterday northwest, and traveled four miles and encamped on the top of a high mountain, where there was but indifferent grass for our horses. The traveling, amazing bad. We descended one point of brushy and rocky mountain, where it took us about six hours to get the horses down, some of them falling about fifty feet perpendicular down a steep place into a creek. One broke his neck. A number of packs left along the trail as night was fast approaching, and we were obliged to leave them and get what horses we could collected at camp. A number more got badly hurt by the falls, but none killed but this one that broke his neck. Through this broken and inhospitable country, Smith and his men painfully made their way until on the 8th of June they reached the seacoast slightly above the mouth of the Klamath River. Several Indian tribes previously unknown were encountered during this stage of the expedition, and a considerable number of furs collected. But food was scarce, and game neither very plentiful nor in good condition. This, coupled with the difficulty of the route, sapped the strength of the men and made them recognize more clearly than ever the dangerous nature of the venture upon which they had entered. Thus, a note of pathos appears in the prayer Rogers records in his journal under the date of May 23rd, when the company were in the thick of these troubles. Quote, O God, he wrote, may it please thee in thy divine providence to still guide and protect us through this wilderness of doubt and fear, as thou hast done heretofore, and be with us in the hour of danger and difficulty, as all praise is due to thee and not to man. O oh, do not forsake us, Lord, but be with us and direct us through. From their camp near the mouth of the Klamath, the company followed the coast northward, keeping close to the sea, sometimes indeed traveling along the beach, until they came to the lower stretches of the Umpqua River. On this stage of the journey, many horses were lost, either in fording streams, 23 in three days was the record, or through other accidents. Some, too, were killed by the Indians. Game was not overly abundant, but a number of furs, including a few of the sea otter, and some food, cheaply berries, fish, and dried eels, were secured from the Indians. Moreover, Smith learned from the Umpqua Indians that the Willamette River, with its open path to the Columbia, which meant safety and an end to hardship, lay only a short distance away. But the greater part of the company were destined never to reach this river. On July 14th, the Monday morning, Smith left his men when breakfast was over to trace out a route for the day's journey. In his absence, the Indians, who had previously been most friendly, suddenly attacked the camp, killing all but two of the trappers. Among the victims was the chronicler of the expedition, Harrison G. Rogers, as thorough a Christian gentleman as Smith himself. The survivors of the massacre, besides Smith, were Arthur Black, who escaped to the woods after shaking off three of the savages, and John Turner, a man of gigantic strength, who, with only a piece of firewood for a weapon, beat down or killed four assailants, and succeeded in intercepting Smith as the latter was coming back to camp. Ignorant of Black's escape, Smith and Turner made their way to the Hudson's Bay post at Vancouver, where Black had arrived the previous day. 
Here they were received with every kindness by Dr. John McLaughlin, factor in charge, who immediately sent an expedition which recovered nearly all the furs and property Smith had lost. Since the latter had no means of transporting the restored furs, McLaughlin very generously purchased them from him at the market price, about $20,000 in all. Smith and Black remained at the Hudson's Bay post throughout the winter, but Turner shortly joined a trapping expedition under McLeod and returned to southern Oregon, where the massacre, from which he had so recently escaped, had taken place. For many years after this, Turner made his home in the same region, and is credited with having opened the cattle trade some years later between the Columbia and the Sacramento Valleys. He also aided in the rescue of the Donner Party in 1846. With the coming of spring, Smith and Black set out to rejoin Jackson and Sublette, who were then trapping in the Snake River country. The reunion of the three trappers took place at Pierre's Hole on the western side of the Teton Mountains, after a separation of nearly two years. During this time, Smith had covered an immense stretch of the country, nearly all of which he was the first to explore. He had traversed the first of the great transcontinental routes to California, made known the valleys of the San Joaquin and Sacramento to the American trappers and through them to the American settlers, opened a line of communication from Northern California to the Oregon country, a route the Hudson's Bay Company were quick to take advantage of, and traversed the Pacific Slope from the Mojave Desert to Puget Sound. Yet in all the state, no monument has ever been erected to this forerunner of California pioneers. Smith's career, after his second expedition, did not again directly touch California. For some months after his return to Pierre's Hole, he continued in the fur trade with Jackson and Sublette, but finally he and his partners sold their business to the recently organized Rocky Mountain Fur Company, in which Bridger, Fitzpatrick, and Sublette were the leaders. In the spring of 1831, the former fur partners embarked on the Santa Fe trade, setting out from St. Louis on April 10th with a party of 85 men. In the sandy wastes between the Arkansas and Cimarron rivers, the company found themselves without water and in a desperate strait. In seeking to discover some source of relief, Smith fell into an Indian ambush and was killed. He was a brave leader, a Christian gentleman, who made religion an active principle from the duties of which nothing could seduce him an explorer as well as a fur trader, and the true pathfinder of California history. The annals of the West bear record of many heroic men, but no pioneer ever set foot on western soil of greater heroism and nobler life than Jedediah Strong Smith. End of chapter 5